Welcome to the Wharton Alumni Founders and Funders Association podcast. I'm Jerry Houston, co-president of the Wharton Alumni Founders and Funders Association, or WAFA for short. We're a global Wharton alumni club with the mission to increase the number of Wharton women founders and the number of Wharton women who get funded. The latest PitchBook University report came out recently, and in 2019, 13% of Penn's founders are women, but they're raising just 7% of the VC dollars. This is up from about 50 basis points from last year, so there's been some progress, but we still have a long ways to go. That's why WAFA is hosting frequent meetups in the Bay Area and now in New York to provide support for female founders. To connect with us and see what we're planning next, visit HelloWAFA, that's hello, W-A-F-F-A, dot org. This podcast is a recording of a recent panel discussion on the business of building a brand, and it was our first event in New York. Thanks to 3L Capital for hosting us. On the panel is Aram Hasnain, partner at Idea Farm Ventures, Melissa, Melissa Mash, founder and CEO of Dagny Dover, and Dory Smith, co-founder of Of Mercer. We discussed their customer, what their brand stands for, and how they listen to and implement customer feedback. It was really interesting to hear the brand's origin stories, from trunk shows at Wharton to getting connected to Warby Parker's Chinese sorcerer for producing things in China. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. It's a new alumni club, um, and we're a global affinity club, so not just in New York, not just San Francisco, but anywhere there are important women who are starting their own businesses or who are funding other businesses. Um, our mission is to encourage more important women to start companies and to get them funded. Um, I don't know if you're aware of the stats around this, but Penn actually lags their, our peer schools in the number of women founders we have and the percentage of VC money they raise. So only 13% of Penn founders are women, and they're only raising 6% of the VC money that gets awarded to Penn founders. So our mission as an alumni club is to help move the needle on this. So we want to see more women to start their businesses, and we want to see them get funding, either from other Wharton alums or from anybody else in the VC community. So really appreciate you guys hosting us here. Absolutely aligned with our mission. And so thank you so much to the panelists. Um, three amazing Wharton founders and funders. I'm um, so excited to get started about talking about how they were able to build their brands. Um, and so I'll just ask each of you to introduce yourself down the line and then we'll get started. Uh, hi, my name is Erin Hussmane. Um, I am a partner at Idea Farm Ventures where we invest in consumer lifestyle brands and services at the Preseason I am Dory Smith, and I founded Of Mercer, which is a women's workwear company. I'm Melissa Mash, I'm co-founder and CEO of Dagny Dover. We are a performance-based accessory brand. Awesome. Cool. Well, I would love to just get things started um, and ask you all to talk about your brand um, and what it means, right? From the investor perspective, what you focus on, what you bring to your portfolio companies, and for for the direct-to-consumer brands, what you need for your consumers? Sure, so um, Idea Farm Ventures, we came together uh, because we really saw a gap in the market in the venture community where um, while consumer brands were attracting a lot of capital from the venture world, um, the venture world uh, traditionally has invested a 
print tech. And so you would see these consumer brands that are inventory heavy or capex heavy um, being funded by the venture community who traditionally expects tech like returns. And so um, because my business partners and co-founders and I all come from the consumer space, I thought like, boy, wouldn't it be great to create a platform that really focuses on consumer lifestyle brands, capitalizing them in the way we feel they should be capitalized, um, at least for some, uh, and doing so at the earliest stage and creating an ecosystem around that. Cool. Um, of Mercer was born kind of out of a personal need, which I think is a lot of founder stories, which is I worked in an office every day and I had a really hard time getting dressed in a way that made me feel good about myself. Um, so we basically launched a brand that was direct to consumer and that sits somewhere between Fury and Banana Republic. Um, and, you know, I think we get this a lot. I got this right before um, this panel actually, but in a time when I think so many people are exiting this like kind of conservative workswear space, um, a lot of women feel abandoned. So I think, you know, when I talk about the kind of conservative customers, we're talking about lawyers and bankers and accountants, and there are a lot of them and they have a lot of money. Uh, and then when I think about kind of the next year down, it's women who like jeans and a blazer or love to wear a dress or they go to a PTA meeting and want to look chic. Um, so a lot of brands are kind of exiting a market that serves this need. Um, and so I think we're talking a lot about brand today. So I think one of the things that is interesting for us is just really being dedicated to a consumer and understanding her mindset when she's shopping for that stuff. So um, we don't build a brand where we pretend that you're gonna like go to the beach in the outfit, but we are going to make it clear that you're gonna feel empowered and uh, you're gonna stand taller and you're gonna talk louder and you're gonna be the boss that you want to be um, with a little bit of humor. Like we definitely have kind of like a tongue in cheek voice, but we're not pretending to be something we're not. And I think that really makes women feel seen and heard um, in that aspect of their life. Um, Jack and Giver was born out of my experience with my last job before going back to business school, which was with Coach and BK, uh, as well as my own personal handbag frustration. So in my last role before, um, before I'm working on you know, this whole journey, um, I was in charge of turning around the first store, first photo shoots, first, first location in Europe, which had a lot of problems. The store was at Ebro Terminal 5. It was sort of a microcosm of what the world of the handbag landscape looks like in terms of every single brand being in the terminal, but people not really being happy with the, with the options. So given that it was 2009, people were complaining about their bags, they wanted something that had a ton of functionality, but also had to look great. They didn't want to spend $1,000 for it. Um, they also wanted really practical materials because life is messy, you might get stuck in the rain, and you might ruin your leather bag, so you want something, you know, a material that you can hand wash, or you know, <coughs> wipe the wine off of, or the beer off of, or, or you know, babies can draw on, and that's okay. So um, hearing all these problems and experiencing my own and my frustration as well, it being 2009, Bob Black had just launched, Ben and had just launched, and Official Native was the thing, and I wanted to go back to Wharton, in particular, to start a brand which has now become Jack and Dover, which of course embodies not only a fantastic price point, awesome, awesome quality, of course a ton of functionality with the right pockets, not just a lot of pockets, a classic aesthetic for someone who's on the go. And again, this is not just for women, but this is really anyone who is of this mindset of wanting to you know, multitask and wanting products that work better for them than just serving up as marketing. So um, started working in the business while I was at Wharton and 
And I know we have a lot of founders here tonight. Can I just get a quick show of hands? How many of you are founders or aspiring founders? How many of you are funders or on the investment side? Now you know who each other are. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so I'm very, I was curious about origin stories um, and would love to hear for, um, for you how you got started. How did you get your first samples made? How did that happen? Do I have a recorder now? <laughs> yeah, you just skip right over it. Um, so we uh, we started. I, I mean, I'll go into the very beginning, which was like when we were at work and we did focus groups where we would bring in every work dress we had and bring in all of our friends' work dresses, and we would say like, "What do you like about this?" and describe why you liked it. So we kind of came up with this like collection of based on feedback of dresses that existed. We started with dresses exclusively, like the idea of like one and done. That's an outfit. Um, so we came up with kind of like what those, like the first five pieces should look like. Um, from there, we worked with someone that we had a connection with who had a production facility that she worked with in China. So we worked with her to basically like cobble together these samples um, and produce them in China. So this was it during our, like the summer of our, in between our two years of business school. And then we had all the production, we sold it at the end of business school. I don't know if you were at our trunk show. Um, but we had the trunk show to actually see, are people gonna put their money where their mouth is to, to buy it? You know, you can say, you can, you'll buy it, you'll say you'll pay this price for it, but like, come on, give us your credit card. Um, so that was like the very first step. And we, our whole supply chain was based on this one person that I happened to grow up with. Um, we found that it was a very challenging experience to work. First of all, we didn't have a designer. We had someone who kind of knew production and kind of knew what we wanted. Um, and we had a lot of issues with that production, but it also still proved the point that there was a market for this. People were buying the product even if it wasn't perfect. Um, we also saw at that moment that we didn't want to produce overseas. So we actually still produce everything in New York. Um, we sell really good margins. Um, we have seven, uh, not seven, we have five factories we work with here. Um, and it gives us incredible control over it. So after that experience, we then went and found a designer who had personal connections here in New York. Um, she's our creative director still. Um, and that was like a big learning opportunity for us to have that like failed in China experience. And we have never had a reason to leave New York. And people are like, would you go abroad? Maybe like we didn't start here because of because of a moral reason. We started here because it was a business decision. Um, I mean, now we're like family with our factories, so it'd be really hard. But um, you know, whatever's best for the business. Um, so this is actually a story I haven't told maybe ever or in a very long time. But in between my first and second year at Wharton, I decided to. I was like, do I just start this, or do I like go and try one more time to find a job that I actually like? And so I, I actually took an internship at a place called Fahrenheit 212, which is a consulting firm. Um, and while I was there, they had these learning lunches, and Neil from Warby came in. And so after his learning lunch, I pointed him. I was like, I need your help because I need I need a sourcing guy in China for for private handbag factories. And so he gave me his sourcing guy for eyewear, of course. And um, and then I he he found someone for me for handbags. So literally, I spent like winter break. Um, of that year 
uh, going and, and touring factories. He said it's, a, a lot of them were terrible, and you know, a couple of them were okay, and we did samples with them. And um, I started putting together my programming team at that point in time as well. And so having a designer on the team finally who could like do way more than I could, given she could actually make tech packs, and um, that she was just far more talented also than the other designers who I've been working with on freelance basis as well, then things started to come together after that. Uh, we decided we needed to move production to New York in terms of sampling so that we could control the entire process and iterate a lot more quickly. And so we, we did that. Our first factory was in New York, but New York is really not set up for this type of product. Clothing is, is very common to be done here in New York. It's very possible, but quality bags are, are really, really challenging. So very quickly we saw like, okay, this served a purpose. We were able to do our pre-sale here working with a glorified sample room that was a factory here in New York for 2013, but then we really needed to raise capital and scale it and, and move on to mass production back in Asia for 2014. That's awesome. I, I love the Wharton connection and yeah, hearing that origin yeah. story. Yeah. Um, I think I, all three of us met our co-founders at Wharton. I wonder if you could tell us what your counsel is to the founders that you that you meet that are like at, at the idea stage right like that maybe don't have samples yet like mm -hmm. how do you how do you counsel founders in terms of like their fundraising journey do you tell them like oh try to get traction in the market first and then come talk to me how does that work well, we, uh, we invest um, oftentimes too much uh, in companies, and so one piece of advice I would say is just don't be afraid to share your idea and share it liberally. Um, I think there is a, always a hesitation that someone might steal my idea. It's very hard to start a company, and so what, if you have a great idea by sharing it, you're, you're, you have a better chance of getting good feedback, and a you know, good feedback loop from some friends and family, and there's this really, amazing ecosystem in New York that's growing every year um, than someone's doing an idea. Um, and I think building relationships with investors who uh, you feel are aligned with uh, investing in the kind of business or brand um, that you're looking to build, building those relationships early and, and also you know not, not being so worried about having them put the right deck or um, the answer to every question. Um, I think that will help you uh, that will only spark further creativity and flesh out what you're working on, and it might lead to, um, you know, finding your next supplier for your company um, and helping you figure out the, the path to your next step. Yeah, that's awesome. I wonder if you three of you could talk about um, how you're finding your customers now, right? Because there was the whole on-ramp of like of Instagram. Um, and everyone thinking, oh, I can just acquire users through these new social channels. Um, most people would say they've been saturated now. It's really expensive to acquire users digitally. So I would love to hear from you, you know, what are some best practices for, for now, for 2020, right? How are you thinking about user acquisition? I think it, it really depends on what stage of business that you're in. Um, also, things were different, you know, when we started in 2013, Instagram advertising didn't exist, you know, so we were relying on Facebook and then Instagram. Had, so the point, things have evolved and circumstances have changed on all these platforms. Um, for us at the beginning, it was digital because we could quantify the ROI because we'd be very targeted about who we're speaking to and we just didn't have a lot of marketing money to spend and it really didn't even start spending on marketing until basically Q2 of 2013. So we had to get by on word of mouth. Um, but then of course you hit a point where 
people aren't going to just trust an ad. People aren't, you know, people, there are only so many bloggers that you can work with and, you know, recruit um, who will then get your, your products, you know, in front of other people. And you have to do something beyond beyond digital and beyond, you know, quantifiable, cheap, safe digital. Um, so, you know, we found at this stage for, for where we are, you know, six and a half years in the business, you really just have to be everywhere. You got to be on, you know, as we're advertising, you have to be, you have to, you don't have to do all of these things, but the point is that you have to be in multiple channels. You have to have, of course, a lot of press going on, you're having physical footprints, of course, podcast advertising, did subway advertising last year, which was really popular. You know, you just have to sort of be omnipresent. Um, the fact that we're on a number of retailer sites, again, it's a very small portion of our business, but in terms of getting eyeballs and brand awareness, it's huge. And that makes sure that our e-commerce brand is going, and business is growing at the same rate, if not faster, because people are coming back to our site to shop the full collection versus a small amount of inventory and, and, and rep that we have on retailer sites as well. So we've definitely used wholesale as very much a customer acquisition channel, not a sales channel. Um, I would, I guess, maybe just to add to that, I mean, most of the credit depends on the stage that you're at. And just going back to what I was saying earlier, just getting that feedback loop in the earliest days of even at launch, if that's when you'll really also unpack who are the evangelists of your brand and what you're building. And while direct-to-consumer is, or, or rather digital advertising is great because you do have that attribution and you can understand with data who is actually clicking on your ads and buying your product, even uh, you know, there, there's tremendous value in the grassroots side of things and really understanding who is gravitating towards your brand and really building an organic community um, up front. So I'll take you back on that. We actually don't spend on advertising at all, uh, which is our marketing at all. Everything we have grown has been word of mouth or um, different campaigns that we use with like real women. So we'll do a woman of culture campaign. Um, we have every Wednesday we feature a different woman. We just feature our like 60th woman. So it's every week. And we pick people who are not, in, like they're not Instagram people. They are centers of influence in whatever they do. So um, a MD at Goldman or a consultant or a lawyer or someone who just has influence wherever they are, um, we they become our kind of our advertisers out there. We give them address, we take their picture, we feature them, um, and then they're our advocates going forward. So we're we're really unique to be at our our scale and not spend. And I think it that I truly believe that has to do with the product we launched when we launched and their appetite for the product, and it just kind of grew out of that. That's awesome. And you mentioned um, you know the importance of sharing the idea, getting that feedback, right? And then you never know who's going to be able to help you if they know what you're trying to accomplish. As these companies start to grow, especially in the direct-to-consumer space, I think a lot of the conventional wisdom is DTC is so popular and so successful because you get this constant feedback loop, right? You're much more in, in touch with your customers. I would love to hear from, from you how do you guys incorporate that feedback or how do you seek it out? How do you get um, the feedback from your customers and how does that make its way back into the product? Oh, there's a whole process. So um, <laughs> just starting from the very beginning, before we produced a single bag, we had a survey that was just like a dozen of them to hear that they had some registrations to make sure that we were designing very specific specs into the product. So for example, the drop length on the bag to make sure that you could get it over your shoulder while you're wearing a heavy leather coat was really important because it's really annoying when the bag gets stuck over your, um, over your elbow. 
So that, you know, how long the key leash needs to be in order for you to use it for your car, for your home, et cetera. It's not good enough that you have to unhook it every single time you need to use it. You're going to lose your keys, et cetera. So these are the tiny details that we worked into our first samples and our, not our first samples, our first um, real, uh, real samples, the ones that were good enough to show anyone, and then for the more to sell. Um, and then after that, that was just a print of our DNA from you know, our engagement on social. It was not it was not push marketing saying, this is actually this is what you should buy it. It was saying, hey, what do you think? Do you like this design or that design? Do you like this color or that color? Which, which, which do you prefer? Before we actually put any money into it because inventory is expensive. Handbag inventory <coughs> produced abroad is expensive. So we were able to mitigate some of our risks that way. And then even today, I mean, we still survey and focus, not, not focus, but we actively survey every 12 to 15 months our fan base, not even just our customer base, but our fan base saying, like, why haven't you purchased? Or what are you waiting for next? Or, you know, what what is it? What's your feedback on the product and on the experience? How can we improve, you know, the customer experience versus the website and all of that? So, I mean, we hear, we hear really interesting things from people being like, I wish we had done that. They're like, wait a second, you haven't done that. Have you not noticed? Oh my gosh, we're, we're doing a terrible job of showing you this. So, um, you know, we're able to optimize the site and not necessarily change the product, but just change how the content is displayed in order to increase conversion, et cetera. Um, but feedback is actively taken. Anyone who's commenting on our social posts you know, saying, I wish you had purple, or I wish you had, you know, like whatever it is, that gets logged for our customer service, our customer service team logs it for our design team to review and aggregate, um, as well as anything that comes in through customer you know, service emails, and that all gets logged for them to look at too. And if there's enough people who want a certain thing, you guys want to take this seriously and listening, okay, does it make sense for us to do silver hardware? Actually, this season is the first time we're ever doing silver hardware, and it's custom, and it's something that we it's taking our time to develop and do right, feel really good about, but that was based off of years of people asking for it and knowing that there's a real market for people who just want more gold. <laughs> I think, I mean, I think Mulch said a lot. I think it's about giving your customers an opportunity to give feedback in a really easy way. Like, I think, you know, we want to know absolutely everything that crosses the mind that you're purchasing or thinking about purchasing. That's really hard to get that feedback. So I, we've done kind of micro um, surveys where the exit survey after you purchase, we'll usually just one question, and they're different um, because we don't want to take up too much time. We do the like kind of annual survey, um, and we've done a bunch of like product tests. Um, I'll do a plug for a friend's company called Makersite. I don't know if you guys heard of them. They do um, they basically mock up your website, and you can put up different products that you don't sell and basically people would they still rate them as though you know it's a survey but it's set up like a website so it's a little bit I, we found the data incredibly accurate um, and it's super cheap to do so that's been you know we'll just photoshop 25 colors and see what performs and it's interesting because we you know we do a lot of neutral tones and seasonless colors and seasonless fabrics but we'll test like yellow and orange and green and blue and people will hate the neons except for orange and like that's really interesting data because we would never have a cohesive orange dress, but then we do. Um, so it's helpful that way. We do. We talked a bit about wholesale, and we use wholesale a bit as a testing ground too. Um, especially players like Run for Runway, who are willing to do riskier, kind of weirder things because um, it's seasonal and it's trendy. So we'll put out something exclusively for them, see what the feedback is, and then do it ourselves oh, if so we cool. if it goes well. And one more thing to add, um, I think it's really important to customers to know that they're being heard too. Like, for example, silver hardware is something that like maybe not everyone would pick up on. They would just be like, oh, I'm glad that you're doing that. But we actively update our styles 
Uh, so much so you'll see even more updates happening next year, but like we have this product that's called the Essential Sponge Wallet. People really wanted more than four cards left. They really wanted to be a cross button at the time that we produced it, and it's now been updated twice. This is gonna be its second this third iteration um, coming out later on this month in a, in a week or so. But it's just like a product that's never done, but you need to make it perfect in order for it to just like sit and for people to and for us to not get those that feedback anymore. Same thing with the landing carryalls and the decode backpacks is that we knew that these were great products, but people just really wanted the luggage sleeve on the back. So we had to, you know, clear through the inventory in an efficient way and put it on the luggage sleeve and like, is it a pain? Yeah, but is it worth it? A hundred percent. It makes people so much happier. You're serving like real needs that they have instead of like covering all the pain points except like one major one. And so I think it's really important when people see that you've, you've actively taken a yet another pain that's phenomenal it sounds like you guys invest a lot of time and effort into listening to it's I was interested by not just your customers but fans who are maybe not customers yet how do you reach those people because it seems like it would be very hard to find them right like people who maybe they're following you or they're fans but they never pull the trigger I mean just the more touch points that they have with your brand whether it's through PR whether it's through friends who have the product seeing your favorite blogger with it seeing it in real life seeing it at Nordstrom like it's just a matter of like four to eight touch points to usually get someone to purchase. Um, if they're seeing an ad, for example, like they're just not like there's no touch point, there's no personal you know recommendation there, so they're far less likely to, to purchase them if they if they got it through someone that they actually know. And again, word of mouth is super strong for us. It continues to be fifty percent of how people purchase through us, which keeps our customer acquisition costs down, et cetera. So that's very helpful. Um, but obviously, you know, it's easier for certain types of certain types of products than others. Well, I want to level up a little bit to the 10,000 foot view, right? We have um, DTC products and brands for like everything, right? You have mattresses, you have toilet paper, toothbrushes, right, apparel, everything. Um, so I'd love to know what your perspective is on, from a macro view, are we at peak DTC? Are we just gonna continuously have new brands coming online? Can the market support all of them? What's the life cycle look like of a brand? How do you especially think about that from an investment perspective? What does it look like now? Yeah, I think that, um, I think it's certainly, like it, there's a lot of players, um, you know, for the literature out there now with how increasing cap costs and the bar is certainly much higher, but there's still, we think certainly a tremendous amount of opportunity. We think that it does uh, encourage creativity, um, not so different from like when 2009, you know, price of cap and a lot of people who you know, would have found a job, could no longer find a job and it sparked this creativity and this like movement around entrepreneurship in terms of space and partner form kind of through a number of other brands. Um, given uh, you know to, to answer your question around is there still opportunity and what are some of the macro trends? One that you may have heard of is sort of the consumerization of healthcare. Um, and so I think thinking about the consumerization of healthcare, we you know what we think about is you know how will millennials take care of an aging of their parents, you know, the next generation sort of anxious to move broadly, but also thinking about elder care and what that means is sort of the intersection of the consumerization of healthcare and like the millennialization of elder care. You know, that type of you know, one for example, one existing space that is so much happening. I mean I think brands have always come and gone. Like that that happens. I think DTC is gonna be the new normal for for a lot of reasons, brands that have like an authenticity, brands that are transparent about where their costs come from, 
Um, I, I think that's how brands will exist for, for a very long time. And they'll come and go because trends happen and trends go. Um, I think, but the way we shop is much more conscious now. And I think um, the actual purchasing of the piece versus like a rental or sharing, that is the part that I think the, the pie might shrink a little bit in that the actual consuming of the brands gets smaller. But I think the brands will stay BTC and that's the new and just to maybe elaborate on the point Tori just made, it, there's so many consumers are looking for authenticity, as she had said, and there are a number of, you know, call them legacy brands and brands that have been around for a while have a certain positioning that they've always stood for. And to try to re-engineer that and try to retrofit a new brand in the world we live in today with the core values that consumers have today is that's so much harder than selling online and then straight up to consumers really being born, creating your brand identity in the world that we live in today. So I think that there's just, there is tremendous opportunity um, and that there is sort of a new reality in uh, what, it, what it takes and what it means for a market, a brand. And a brand certainly has to have a reason to exist because you can't just simply slap a, a new brand on an old product. But if you're reimagining whether it's the supply chain or the brand identity and the go to market strategy, like there's, there's points of innovation along every kind of value chain. Yeah, I think that there are a whole new set of reasons why brands will fail what we hit today than you know, let's say 20 years ago. Um, just in terms of just the amount of funding that's going into these brands, it's totally different than you know, in past generations where you can start really small. Um, also, you know, just look at all these like pop up, you know, Instagram brands that like look like terrible quality, look like they've really just like, you know, pieced it together and the brand identity is not strong enough or the product is, is not differentiated enough where I don't think it'll, it'll be successful. You know, you'll see them come and go. Um, so I think that, yeah, just like the landscape is changing in terms of then some of these that are getting lots of funding will, when they have no exit opportunities or, you know, that's going to be a problem too. So then people aren't going to want to fund those businesses that look like that profile anymore either. So there are a lot of things going on in which I think that, again, just like any other generation of past retail brands, like things will shake out and you'll know, still see like the ones that, that make it the one that make it. Yeah, and just to piggyback on your comment about funding, right? And there's so much capital out there today. Um, I'm really curious to hear what the three of your perspectives are around when folks who are building direct-to-consumer, consumer product, brand-based, strong brand-based product, when should they start thinking about fundraising? How should they start thinking? I think this week was all about Fred Wilson's blog post around like return to actually looking at like software margins. Um, and for a lot of you know apparel or consumer product companies, those margins are different. Um, but a lot of them have gotten these crazy valuations that are more like software companies too. So how are you? How did you guys think about fundraising? Did you ever consider like um, you know like revenue-based financing or other alternative uh, modes of raising money? raising VC, like how should founders and direct-to-consumer products be thinking about that? I think you need to think about it from day one before you even use your product, before you even, like, as you're thinking through, like, the whole business plan, thinking through your co-founders, like, at least every part of our business has been built off of my having gone through that, and it's worked out well, because you need to. The financing, especially the decisions that you make at the beginning, can dictate your whole future and your whole exit you know, so I, I've seen a lot of other founders make the mistake of whatever, whether it's who they took money from, how much they raised, at what valuations, um, whether it's how they incorporated, what type of entity, like you're just cutting off some options there and you're, you're not getting 
pieces together and know that well that it, it creates challenges down the road. Um, so I think you really have to go through the whole the whole life of your brand or how long you want to be involved before before you can start anything. That's the whole reason our idea of Inventor is coming to existence is exactly that point. And um, going back to the event I had mentioned earlier, just thinking through and meeting with with investors earlier on to understand if they're meeting with the minds of the kind of company you're looking to build and the kind of company that Internet is looking to invest behind what that growth profile looks like and how big it's big and how big you want to grow your your company. And, uh, you know, consumer brands, you know, tech-enabled is, is different than tech consumer tech. So, uh, you know, if you were building a company that is product-based, inventory heavy, has a lead time to production, um, or there's CapEx, there's real estate involved, you know, it's a very different capital needs, funding needs requirement and return profile, and also risk profile, um, than, than obviously a tech company. So, um, certainly something to really think through in the earliest days and when you're taking funding and you know, making, making sure that the, the expectations um, you know, are well managed on both sides so that you um, have a very clear strategy um, prior to taking funding. Um, we never took funding, um, which is, again, a big unique in an inventory type business. And I think the key I would say to people, to funding entrepreneurs, is to make sure your margins are good because once you start getting cash flow, if you have good margins, you can keep growing without taking capital. That being said, we can't, you know, we can't invest a million dollars into a new storefront without taking capital. Um, so that's something we've never done. Every pop up we've ever built has been for like thirty thousand dollars max. Um, so like those kind of like one time big costs have always been hard for us, and we definitely get jealous from our competitor like opens twenty five stores at like one moment. Um, but that being said, we hit profitability really early, um, and our we're just cash flow funded. So um, we've done, especially when we have kind of big, not anymore, but when we had really big wholesale orders and we didn't have the scale to support that, we would do like debt finance, super short debt financing, like factoring or PO financing, um, just to, to like not start the cash flow of the business. But um, that's how we decided to grow it from the beginning, and there are definitely disadvantages of that like I, I think that like especially in this day and age of like get big get big get big um you were saying get profitable get profitable get profitable and that is not the conversation a lot of people are having there are times when I I think we could have done this differently and we but we would have had to as Melissa said start at that from the beginning it's very hard like we had some conversations when we had revenue of like a million dollars and that's a really weird time to get fund investment because we're we exist proven our concept, but then who's investing us and why? Um, and I think there's also this, like, you raise a pre-seed, then you raise a seed, and then you raise an A. So, like, can we just pop in at a B? Like, it's actually not that easy. Um, so it, it's kind of like exactly what Melissa said, is you really need to think through how you want, like, how you want to grow the business and what you want to be doing. I, it's been really nice as a founder to never be, like, out fundraising. Like, that's a really, like, I've been sitting at my desk running a company for the past five years. Um, and that's important to me. That's incredibly impressive. Um, yeah, I feel like margins are making a comeback. It's <laughs> 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 so so <laughs> yeah. so right now. <laughs> uh, cool. Uh, well, I just want to do a time check. I, we have some time for questions if the audience has anything they want to ask. Awesome. 
Um, we've recently been working with a leadership coach that I really like because she helps us anticipate our needs before we know we're going to need them. Um, aside from like the type of people that we're going to need to hire, the types of processes that we really need to start putting in place now before we get to the next level, the types of other ways that we need to be setting up our organization to make sure that goals are continuing to be really positive, etc. So, um, you know, to date, we've seen some inflection points in, in the number of people. We have 19 people now, so it's still you know, relatively small. But we've seen some inflection points where we've definitely made some adjustments to more policies, or you know, things that you like more time and care for each for each individual's development goals and making sure they felt appreciated and as an individual instead of just being like all the children, you know, like take care of everyone. So um, we've had to institute a lot more time into each person and special programming so that everyone feels really appreciated in offsites um, as well as other team you know, outings throughout the year. But the, the, the leadership coach has been really helpful. What we don't know, we don't know. think about selling through other channels? I think you have to be smart about who your partners are and what you're going to get out of them um, if you are increasing that control. For us, it, it's really uh, about uh, partners that are giving us data, they're putting our product in the hands of people who want our product, or it's just pure like marketing, like Renfrome that has, I don't know, how many million unique visitors a month. Like, that's great, especially we, we joined the platform maybe two years ago when there were very few kind of small brands on there. So we were just seen next to all these other brands. Um, and it's like, oh, you know, Rebecca Taylor and Mercer, they must be the same. Um, and that was huge for us. And that just kind of legitimized us really quickly. Um, but I think especially if you can talk more about like the physical retail, because we do less of that, but like not being able to control how your product is, is displayed, I think you to like look at legally. Yeah, it's a high tech process. Um, so for example, with, with Bandier, their stores their stores always look great, so I never have to worry that like it doesn't look great in stores. That's that's one of the good things about them. Um, Equinox, you know, I and, and actually Bandier, I can go and like train the staff at each location, like manager at each location so that they can pass on the knowledge to the rest of the team. So we try to control it as much as possible. For Equinox, I'll train all the regional managers and they'll go off and, and do trainings within their stores and then for Nordstrom I go and do every single training. I answer every question. We talk about like the hard questions that customers may ask. You know frankly like our presentation Nordstrom is never going to like look the way I want it to look, right? It's just not. It's a department store. It's got a trillion other brands that it's dealing with. Um, it's got fixtures that are you know some in some cases 10 years old, etc. So uh, you have to be comfortable with that. But again it's a trade-off of the, the amount of eyeballs, the legitimacy, um, the, who we're sitting yeah, the who we're sitting next to, etc. is is huge. And then in terms of dot com you know, we're on Nordstrom.com and we just heavily monitor the site to make sure that we look as good as we can at any given time, that the pictures are in the right order, that, you know, they're getting, mistakes happen all the time, you know, so it's like we just have to be on top of it for them so that our brand is as controlled as possible on every day.
they don't have the opportunity to shop in person the way that people in New York and LA do, um, or even places like Dallas. Um, so how do we talk to them and under, like acknowledge that we understand basically they're shopping online, that's how they're consuming products, um, and, and make sure that we're giving them all the information that one would get at a side to make store or um, something that they're not doing that also. My, my husband is from Indiana, so I've like bombarded all his you know, high school friends with kind of what they do, and it, it's, they're really completely the people we've talked to are really concentric these days, and we use Nordstrom as a way to get into secondary cities. We're not in a lot of tertiary cities yet. Um, that was was our way to get to them in addition to digital. And something that made very a concerted effort for, for our brand was you know at the beginning we started with work out to do like you know, as a little bit more coastal or you know major cities. Um, but especially as it's been kind of expanded into the neoprene collection, which launched about two and a half years ago, it's all priced under two hundred dollars a second style. Um, but it's all priced under two hundred dollars. It's unisex. So it just has a lot more uses where it doesn't just apply to maybe people who are commuting or like live out of the bed every day, but people who do live with, with car culture and such. So, um, you know, our, our products appeal to students, to people who work inside the home, people who work out of the home, et cetera. So it's not, we, we see it actually very widespread. Um, in fact, yeah, some of those other cities or other states even around that are not in the place are in the top five. Time for one more question. As you build your brand externally, how innovative are you in your approach to disrupting that culture internally? How are you uh, constructing culture internally? Is it innovative? I don't know if it's innovative. We feed them a lot. <laughs> <laughs> lots of wine and lots of food. Lots of sushi. <laughs> we try to speak. Uh, our, our employees' language, but what they want is they want flexibility, right? Like everyone that we hire is hardworking. They're all like running themselves, right? Like we don't need to we don't need to be like that. But as long as everyone's a star performer and they and they prove themselves and they can work from anywhere, um, like at a certain point, it's like okay, you've earned it. You can work from anywhere. So they're going to be in Costa Rica for a month, like they can't come here. Um, and that honestly, that alone, aside from like anything else we do, is the biggest thing that people appreciate, and that on like surveys or feedback from, from our employees that they appreciate the most because they just want to live their lives without feeling tethered to two weeks or whatever it is. You know, so we say officially like vacation is four weeks, you know, um, family care is you know two weeks, that's not including parenting, et cetera. But really it's a matter of if you get your work done, if you're a team player, if you're collaborative, if you can do that in person as well as offline, there's no stop there's no stopping whatever you want. You know, the first thing that came to mind in the question around customer feedback loop was culture because your employees should be like your biggest fans. Like they come into work every single day to like grow this brand and they probably could be doing something else that pays more, um, but instead they show up every day to work on this brand. And so they are your biggest advocates and, and if you can embed it in the culture for even like that feedback loop and for people to think beyond just their jobs and for those Walls to be lowered, getting people from different functions to talk to each other and there being some sort of feedback loop, whether it's around, you know, someone in someone who is on the tech side or on the engineering team who has a group of friends who has like product feedback and that coming back to the technical team or marketing team. You know, just to be able to kind of create that collaborative um, culture as you grow, challenging, but 
Yeah, and I think piggybacking on that, it's creating kind of entrepreneurial spirit within everyone on your team. So like, we're, we're capped by how many hours are in the day, not by what our opportunities are. So there are probably 20 things I'd like to do with the brand tomorrow, but I need someone to go do them. So if someone on my team is like, hey, like I think we have a lot of opportunity for a pop-up in uh, Des Moines. Here, here's a ticket to Des Moines, go figure it out. Um, so really allowing them to have kind of that feedback loop and collaboration of like being like, you're not stuck in this one role. Um, you're going to do as much as you want to do or can do. Um, and some of our higher <laughs> mistakes have been people who came from very traditional siloed backgrounds where they're like, oh, no, no, like, this is my box. Like, I don't do anything outside that box. And that's really hard when you get up a small team. Well, thank you so much to our <laughs> panel. This was amazing to hear. Um, three really successful alumni stories and just as perspectives, uh, so refreshing, you know, Coming from San Francisco, we don't get as much talk about brands, so this has been like really interesting for me personally. Um, and thank you all so much for coming out, and thank you to Real Capital for hosting us um, and for our empathy for pouring. Uh, and I hope that we can do more Wafa events in New York and on the East Coast. And we're a global um, affinity club. We're not the ones organizing these events, right? It's up to the alumni in whatever city you happen to be in. If you want to get together with other alumni, um, we can help provide some infrastructure for you. But that's that's the objective, is to really support each other as we're alumni. So thank you so much for coming out.